This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm a professor of radiology and biomedical imaging at UCSF. I've been there for over 25 years now, and my space story started in 1996 when I put in a proposal to do musculoskeletal imaging, CT imaging, on the first eight space station crews. And the idea was to use CT imaging sort of post, pre and post flight, and one year afterward to look at the loss and recovery of bone on astronauts making six-month space flights on the International Space Station. And the data from that project continue to be used, you know, even though the data were acquired, you know, starting almost, you know, starting 20 years ago, they continue to be used uh, in even recent reports. So thank you to the NASA uh, data archive. And uh, my work as a principal investigator in on uh, that study of bone loss led to involvement with the National Space Biomedical Research Institute as the musculoskeletal team lead. And um, one of the projects I was involved in uh, involved developing a roadmap for space health for the European Space Agency. And that's referenced in the uh, article you see, the citation you see at the bottom of the screen here. So without further ado, I'll just uh, start my talk. And so essentially what I'm gonna talk about first is just uh, talk a little bit about the characteristics of the space environment and some of the animal studies that illustrate those effects on bone and then talk a bit more extensively on bone loss in human spaceflight, in particular introducing the methodologies we use to quantify bone and the uh, results we've gotten from different ISS flights. And then finally, I will talk about countermeasures to bone loss. So some of the characteristics of the space environment we know very well, and you as an audience know from having seen the earlier lectures in the series that the space environment really disrupts pretty much every aspect of human functioning, including bone. And that impact on the musculoskeletal system can lead to a risk of injury during a mission or reduced skeletal health long after a mission is completed. So it's very important to develop countermeasures. And what I've tried to do here is give a sense of what some of these disruptions are that impact bone. And you know, the what comes to mind first is the disuse associated with living in microgravity, radi space radiation, particularly the uh, extragalactic, the galactic radiation that can come you know, once one is beyond the protective magnetic fields of Earth, also impact bone. Bone metabolism is closely tied in with circadian rhythms and the disruption of circadian rhythms can have an effect. And to some extent, it's possible that social stress may have an impact as well, the isolation during the mission and other sorts of social stressors. And those generally, might be different systems that impact bone. 
So the principal disruptors I'm going to just briefly talk about here are the impact of disuse and the impact of radiation. And on the left here, you see sort of a cartoon uh, taken from a, a review paper uh, cited below, which goes into sort of the molecular disruption of uh, bone metabolism that occurs when the mechanical, constant mechanical stimulus that exists on our skeletons is removed when we're in microgravity. And the removal of that gravitational vector and the stresses on the skeleton result in the the diminution of molecular factors that promote bone forming cells or osteoblasts and an increase in elevation of those molecular factors that stimulate the formation and activity of bone resorbing cells or osteoclasts and those the that differential impact on these bone forming and resorbing cells leads to cortical and trabecular bone loss which if we look at sort of total bone losses canonically, sort of a percent per month in the spine and the hip. And then on the right, you see a similar cartoon for um, space radiation. And if we look in particular on the right side of that cartoon, sort of uh, at uh, doses of greater than two gray, you see that there are... Um, effects of elevated uh, inflammatory response, elevated inflammatory cytokines, and uh, reduction of cell proliferation, proliferation, all factors that promote the formation of osteoclasts and diminish the impact of osteoblasts. And again, superimposed on this loss that we get from disuse, there is an additional loss from the impact of uh, radiation. And so what I wanted to show here are a couple of studies that show in detail, these are animal studies, rat and mouse studies that we can use to kind of separate and understand these two sources of bone loss separately in a mechanistic way. And on the left, we see a study of uh, hind limb unloading. And so this is where, when we take a rat or a mouse, we suspend the rear limbs in a type of trapeze, and then the animal is able to navigate around its cage using its forelimbs. And what we see here is in the middle, you can see this panel of uh, it's a cut through the uh, femur of the rat. And you can see on top, these are control rats. And then on the bottom, rats that have been suspended, uh, have tail undergone tail limb suspension. And you can see in that hind limb unloaded rat image on the bottom, the tremendous cortical thinning and loss of trabecular structure. And then you can see on the um, on either side of the images impacts on trabecular arc quantification of bone microarchitecture, showing how that hind limb unloading uh, affects bone. Then on the right, we see animals that have been exposed to either radiation or a combination of hind limb unloading and radiation. 
And so if you look at sort of this top panel that shows these colored 3D images, what we're looking at are basically vertebrae, tail vertebrae from, rat, from mice that have been hind limb unloaded, or not hind limb unloaded, but exposed to radiation. And so we see a control images from a control group. So these are images of the trabecular bone in the vertebra and uh, at control on the top and two grays of radiation on the bottom. And what, what they're doing is taking the micro CT image and applying what's called a finite element model, which allows one to evaluate the compressive strength. And what you can see is that there's, first of all, a large uh, destruction of the trabecular, the trabecular architecture in the animal that's been uh, irradiated, but you also see the color maps of stress, and you can see that there is a whole expanded region of the uh, vertebra which is subjected to higher stress. And then on the bottom, what we see is a table uh, where we're looking at, at uh, mice that have been um, exposed to radiation with and without hind limb unloading. And what you can see here, if you look at the table most carefully, is that even if you're, this is taken at 0.5 gray, so this is a relatively low dose of radiation, which would be of heavy ion radiation, which simulates the galactic background that astronauts would experience in a trip beyond low Earth orbit. And uh, this is 0.5 gray, it's a relatively low dose. And what is found is that there are an additional, additionally large deficits in density and microstructure and that if you reload these animals after they have experienced that combination of hind limb unloading and uh, radiation, what you see is that the hind limb unloaded animals that were, that were exposed to these heavy ion beams show a, an incomplete recovery of bone structure compared to the animals that were merely hind limb unloading. So radiation poses superimposes the danger or risk on um, bone structure and exacerbates the losses that one would get just with um, microgravity. So now I'd just like to talk a little bit about some of the missions on the International Space Station. And when we look at loss of bone mass, loss of bone density, there's an increased risk of fracture that comes with that. And if we look in sort of the um, clinical world in elderly men and women, a 10% increase in aerial bone density in the hip is associated with a roughly two to threefold increase in fracture risk. And this is from classic osteoporosis uh, prospective studies. And if a lot bone loss were severe enough to increase the risk of fracture, then there's the possibility that for example, a fracture during a mission could be either a life-threatening or mission-compromising event. And if individuals have extensive bone loss during a mission and they come back and recover that bone incompletely, that may comprom compromise their long-term health, skeletal health, 
in the decades after their service is complete. And an additional risk that I won't cover here is that as bone loss occurs, that calcium is released from the skeleton and increases the risk of renal stones. So what I'd like to just briefly talk about are some of the tools that we use to quantify bone in spaceflight. And the first one is standard dual X-ray absorpsiometry. That's the standard bone densitometry that you see, you know, in studies of postmenopausal osteoporosis. And it's the standard clinical measure that's available at any clinic where people's bone density is measured. And this is essentially, it's a 2D measurement. You can get the total bone mass. You can't resolve the trabecular and cortical components. Or you can get an aerial bone density, which isn't a volumetric bone density. It's a measure of bone density that scales with bone size. So dual x-ray absorpsiometry provides at the spine and hip and other sites a what we call an integral projectional measure of uh, bone mass and uh, aerial bone density. Another approach that we can take to measure to quantify bone during spaceflight uses standard hospital uh, CT scanners. And what we do is when we scan the patient's hip and spine, we scan them together with a reference phantom that contains known concentrations of bone mineral. And you can sort of see this here at the bottom. So we can map each voxel in these three-dimensional scans, map those to equivalent concentration of calcium hydroxyapatite, which is the main constituent of bone mineral. We can take these 3D images, and these, this shows results that were developed in my lab, an approach that was developed in my lab. We can develop uh, regions of interest based on recognizing the 3D ran landmarks, and we can quantify trabecular, integral, and cortical bone and so this is an example here of cortical bone in the hip, in the femoral neck region of interest, in what we call the total femur region of interest. And here we have the uh, trabecular bone. So this is, the, this is the bone in the medullary cavity. In addition to using, defining regions of interest to measure cortical and trabecular bone, we can also use these images to construct 3D mechanical models from, from the CT scan. And in those models, each voxel is mapped from bone density to elastic modulus. And in this particular case of a finite element model of technique developed by my colleague Joyce Kiak at UC Irvine, we get elastic modulus and uh, strength from each voxel based on the relationships you see in these tables here, which are developed from separate experiments with different samples of cortical and trabecular bone. And what we can do is having developed this sort of mechanical model of the proximal femur, we can load that model in the computer in uh, loading conditions that simulate single-legged stance, so those are the forces that would apply if you're walking or jumping, or simulate a fall to the side. 
So those are just, it's just a brief outline of some of the techniques that are used. And the actual, just a brief bit of history, the first studies of bone in space took place in the early 70s. And these are the uh, Skylab and Salyut missions. And so total calcium metabolic studies with total calcium were measured. And the very first bone densitometry devices were developed to monitor bone in these missions. And in particular, the sort of the distant ancestor of bone densitometry, which is single photon absorpciometry, was developed to study loss of bone from the heel and wrist of astronauts uh, on Skylab. In the mid-1980s through 2001, the Mir, Russian Mir space station flew, and uh, there was a study that was led by my colleague Adrian LeBlanc that was published in 2000, where they looked at 19 cosmonauts who were measured pre and post flight using modern DEXA or bone densitometry technology um, pre and post flight at Star City, which is sort of the Johnson Space Center of the Russians. And the key finding there was that if you looked at the hip and the spine, ask cosmonauts were losing one to 1.5% per month bone density in the hip and about a percent per month in the spine. We followed those studies up with um, studies on the space station. And so this was the first project that began. Actually, we were funded in 1997 and our uh, study began in 2000, where we looked at the first eight crews uh, on the International Space Station. And these studies used CT bone density, which in, where we quantified cortical and trabecular bone in the spine and proximal femur, and later extended that to finite element modeling. We looked at the proximal femur, and then uh, Mary Buckstein's group looked at bone strength in the vertebrae. And there were additional studies that used high-resolution PQCT, which is a specialized type of CT that can look at bone microarchitecture in the distal skeleton of humans. I won't cover that you know, to save time, but I give you the, uh, the reference here. And I'll also cover some um, countermeasure studies in particular resistance exercise and the use of uh, bisphosphonates, a classical anti-osteoporosis anti, uh, treatment as a countermeasure to bone loss. So this first study that I want to describe, and this is the study that began, actually is data were gathered between 2001 and 2005, and they're still being used to this day. And so these were 16 international crew members who had images pre-flight, post-flight, and one year after completion of their flight. And they came to and from Johnson Space Center, but they were studied at the Methodist Hospital in the, at the Baylor College of Medicine using the uh, CT scanner there. And what we found was that if we look in particular at the hip, what we found is that if we look at total bone mass, there is here we're looking at pre-flight, post-flight, and one year later in terms of total bone mass in the hip. So this is comparable to just 
the standard bone mass or aerial bone density that you would get from bone densitometry, we find about a 1.6% per month decrease, which is very similar to what was found by the, uh, in terms of the Russian uh, cosmonauts. But one year later, they came very, very close within um, the difference between one year later and pre-flight was not statistically significant in terms of total bone mass. And so what this is telling you is that essentially the total bone mass seems to be recovering. And again, this is consistent with what we see with uh, DEXA bone densitometry. Now, if we look at the trabecular bone, so this is the bone in the interior medullary space, the loss of bone during spaceflight is about 2.3% per month. So these are six-month spaceflights. So this is 50% larger, roughly, than the loss of uh, integral bone density or mass. And the trabecular bone density appears to recover, but it's still one year later hasn't reached the um, level of pre-flight and still statistically significantly very different. And what you actually see if you now look at the cortical tissue, I'm showing here the volume of the cortex, that decreases very similarly to the loss of total bone mass 1.3% per month, but it shows an increase in recovery to near uh, to approximately pre-flight levels. And one interesting thing that you see is if you look at the femoral neck cross-sectional area, which is a measurement of just bone size, what you see is that there's no significant change statistically significant change over the course of the space flight, but there is a statistically significant increase in cross-sectional area of the femoral neck, again, a measure of bone size. And what the story we think this is telling us is that as these astronauts come back, as these astronauts fly, they are having a erosion of the inner cortex and erosion and loss of trabecular elements. When they are reloaded, there is a resumption of bone loading and there is an impetus. The skeleton will replace bone at those areas of highest strain. And those really correspond to the outer parts of the cortex. So what we think is that the, the, cortical component of bone is adding new bone through periosteal apposition, and there's a general increase in bone mass and bone size, even though the volumetric density of bone is lower post-flight. And so what this is sort of telling us is that this is very similar to what we see in aging, where there is a loss of volumetric bone density, in particular trabecular bone with age, but there's a compensatory mechanism where we see in aging people this expansion of bone dimensions to attempt to maintain this ability to sustain mechanical load. So I'd like to introduce here in this slide a follow-up study where we basically created 
finite element models from these CT scans. And here we're looking at the loss of bone strength. And so the question that we're asking is that if we look at the contributions of the trabecular and the integral bone components, and we evaluate them in terms of the total bone strength, what happens? And what we see is that there are very large decreases in bone density in, in bone strength, both in stance loading here. So this is the loading that simulates ambulation and fall loading here. And it's 2.6% per month and 2% per month, somewhat higher than what we saw actually for uh, changes in bone density. And I think what is really important here is that one of these subjects, of these 16 subjects, had a loss of about 30%, which really over six months is about the loss of bone strength that we see on average over the lifetime. And we got a similar result for the, the simulated fall loading as well. So just a, a few a few uh, take-homes from this uh, from these initial findings is that the early ISS crews had very similar rates of bone loss to the Mir crew. So between the Mir and the space station, we really hadn't improved the um, ability to protect against bone loss, even though there you know was there were new pieces of exercise equipment put on the uh, spacecraft. And we saw that trabecular bone loss was larger than cortical bone loss. And that as we looked at people who recovered bone, what we saw is that there was an impaired recovery of this inner trabecular bone and an increase in bone size to compensate. And this makes us think that this particular process of bone loss and reloading, if we don't do something to stop about to to prevent the bone loss makes these hips, the bone structure in these uh, astronauts look like those of older people. So in 2008, the situation changed. A very robust new exercise device was flown to the uh, space station. And this was the Advanced Resistive Exercise Device, or ARED. And the idea, again, with, ex with the resistance exercise is to try and replace some of the loads that are lost when one goes from Earth into microgravity. And so this was a monster of a machine that allowed for very high loads, constant loads across the range of motion, and a very large selection of motions. In particular, two types of exercises are done. One of them are squats and the other are deadlifts. And so what we see here, and this was a paper published in 2019 by uh, Gene Sabonga from NASA's Bone and Mineral Laboratory, is a study where she compared this earliest group of astronauts that I just discussed, and then a group of uh, 11 astronauts who exercised on the A-RED over the course of their mission, and then a group of seven astronauts who exercised on the A-RED and also had an anti-resorptive anti-medication you, that you know, has been used for a long time to treat osteoporosis, and that was alendronate. 
And so what we see here is if we look at this image on the right, this here corresponds, we're looking at percent change from pre-flight. And what we're looking here on the right is total trabecular volumetric BMD in the hip. And this number here on the very, this group of uh, data points on the left-hand side correspond to this early group of astronauts from the first eight missions. And then in the middle, we see a group of astronauts. These are 11 astronauts who did uh, this high intensity resistance exercise. So that's typically every day for a few hours per day. And then on the far right, what we see is the astronauts who were treated with uh, alendronate and who also did this, uh, this resistance exercise. And so what we see is that this combination of the drug and the exercise effectively reduces the mean bone loss of this group to close to zero and doing Resistance exercise has a clear benefit, reducing the bone loss to about roughly half of what it was in this earlier group of subjects. And all these subjects were compared using the same type of scanning technique and algorithm. And on the right-hand side, you see the data for femoral strength, uh, proximal femoral strength. So this is finite element data in the stance in the fall loading conditions, and you see the general pattern here, the astronauts who just do resistance training alone show a reduced rate of bone loss compared to those who use the very early exercises device, exercise devices on the, uh, on the space station, but it doesn't completely reduce bone loss. And then you see the, sub, the mean value for loss of femoral strength is close to zero. And that's the case for stance and fall when you treat with a bisphosphonate. And what happens in terms of recovery? So this is a study where, again, authored by Dr. Sib uh, Jean Sibonga, where she looked at a subset of 10 astronauts who all had uh, A-RED exercise. So she followed them up one year and some of them up to two years after uh, their flight. And what we're looking at here is the loss and recovery of trabecular bone mineral density. And if we compare that to aerial bone mineral density, we see that nine out of 10 subjects recover their, their DEXA, their uh, bone densitometry measures in the hip after, after two years. With respect to looking at trabecular bone, so this is that volumetric bone density measure of trabecular bone, only half of the subjects showed recovery at one year and four out of five subjects followed at two years uh, did not recover. So there appears to be a, an incomplete recovery, even as one uh, goes on after time. And this is consistent with what we see in the spine. So this actually used the spine CT data from our original study. And they were looking um, 
pre-flight return and two to four years out. And here what we see are finite element models instead of for the hip constructed for the vertebra. And these here show regions of high strain that are estimated when one applies a compressive force to the vertebra. And so this is a study coming out of Mary Buckstein's group, again, using data that we compiled in our experiments to do these finite element models. And what they found was that these regions of high strain after these six month flights tended to increase and even one year later were, did not appear to recover. And these losses corresponded to about a percent per month in bone strength, which is very similar to what we observed for bone density in the vertebrae in these subjects. And uh, here you see, again, you see this, the data plotted for 17 subjects with finite element models of the spine at return in one year relative to baseline. And they're essentially, even though there were only four subjects, these at two to four years, these data seem to indicate that there's a persistent deficit that uh, occurs that is not recovered. And so just it appears that high intensity exercise appears to reduce bone loss of bone density and bone strength and uh, even though that loss is reduced, it's still clinically significant. If you combine alendronate with resistance or an anti-resorptive with resistance exercise, you can prevent this bone loss if, as we've shown at the hip. So this is very suggestive data. And uh, overall, I think it's important to realize that given the changes in structure that we see um, that may compromise bone health later in life, it's important to try and prevent that loss from taking place. And I will basically stop there, but I will only just say that uh, one of the things we may be looking for in the future is an optimal combination of drug and exercise that might allow us to reduce drug dose as well as reduce the amount of exercise, given the fact that as we move on to Mars, we're going to be using probably smaller spacecraft that won't permit the sort of mammoth ex exercise devices that we're now flying on the space station. And so I'd just like to end my uh, presentation by um, dedicating it to Millie Hughes-Fulford. You know, across one's career, one comes across students and fellow faculty and mentors who just leave a huge impression upon you. And, you know, you think about them, you'll always, you'll think about them for the rest of your life. And Millie made that impression on me. Uh, I was fortunate to have the chance to collaborate with her on several projects and it was a delightful experience. And I really enjoyed the time that I got to spend with her. And I feel the world of science has lost somebody who is you know, a tremendous human being and contributor. And that's my talk. Thank you. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.